0: It is well with my soul. They don't write songs like that anymore, do they? It is well. It is well with my soul. Jean, thank you so much for choosing uh, that song. And Jean, thank you so much for sharing with us one day before your 90th birthday. If you're able to join us tomorrow for Jean's birthday gathering, you'll be very, very welcome. We're going to be gathering on Zoom at four o'clock. The link for that has been pasted on our online chat platform. Uh, You'll also have received an email if you're on Church Suite as well, inviting you to join us on that occasion. Well, I wonder if you've ever found yourself in that place where you want to laugh, cry, jump, sing and shout all at the same time. I'm talking about the kind of joy that basically is an uncontrollable fusion of emotions that under normal circumstances simply wouldn't go together. I remember finding myself in that place following the birth of each of our children, especially Toby, not because he's more special than the others, it's just that he was first. I experienced every possible emotion in that moment. The pain of the labour. Well, not so much for me, of course, but it was painful to watch nonetheless. The agonising weight, something that I'm really not very good at. The mind-blowing reality when Toby came into the world that this little life was now my responsibility and I had absolutely no idea what to do with this small child. The paralysing fear that I experienced as our baby was whisked away because he was struggling to breathe in the early hours of his life. The awe of the miracle who was later returned to us. And then, of course, that's that pure exhaustion that you experience as well. My experience was a myriad of emotions that were both complementing and competing with one another at the same time. It's very difficult, isn't it, to try and put that kind of experience into words. But maybe you can think of a similar moment in your life. In our scripture reading this morning, as we continue our Advent series, which is called Rediscovering Joy, we find Peter doing his very best to try and gather in all the different emotions that he's experiencing, having come into a relationship with Jesus. And as he shares, he's absolutely gushing. In the end, what he tries to do is gather all of his emotions, and he ends up saying this. Because we believe, we are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy. An inexpressible and glorious joy. What a God we have, he says. How fortunate we are to have him. You get the sense that as Peter is saying all of this, he's run out of adjectives that adequately express all that he's experienced to, hope the, to speak about the hope that he has, even in the midst of the various um, challenges of life that he's wrestling with. Unquenchable joy, even in adversity. Another timely message for us, I think, as we confront the challenge of COVID-19. Well, if you've got a Bible, let's turn together to um, 1 Peter. If you're watching on our online church platform, you can click the Bible button uh, to follow our reading this morning. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. And it says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through um, through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer all kinds of grief and trials. These have come so that, the, so, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith— the salvation of your souls. So I have an impossible task this morning because the subject of this message is inexpressible joy. Those are the words that Peter uses in verse 8. You believe in him and you're filled to overflowing with an uncontainable, inexpressible joy. So what I'm trying to do this morning is proclaim something to you which God's word says is inexpressible. We're kind of on a hiding to nothing, really, aren't we, this morning, in view of that, but humor me. It's going to be a bit like singing that worship song we sometimes try to sing, indescribable. You know the one? The one where the opening words that say God is indescribable, and then we try and spend the rest of the song uh, trying to describe him adequately. So why does Peter speak of joy inexpressible? Well, he speaks of joy inexpressible because he's discovered that any lengthier description or definition of joy is utterly inadequate to capture what we have in Christ Jesus. Because Peter knew a grammatical or even an etymological understanding of the word simply isn't enough. In fact, you could dedicate years of your life to writing a PhD thesis on the subject of joy, and it still wouldn't capture all that there is to be said. As I read Peter's letter, I find myself wondering how many much longer drafts of this letter he wrote before he stopped saying too much and eventually landed on these two words, joy inexpressible. You know, in short, you can study and explain the idea and the gift of joy all that you want. And in the end, what you're left with are Peter's two words, inexpressible and joy or joy inexpressible. So what's Peter's point in saying all that he says? Well, if you really want to understand this joy, you have to experience it from your own heart, and even then you won't be able to adequately explain it. If you've been a Christian even for a few minutes, then you'll know that to be true. Why? Because the Christian faith is an experience faith. It must engage the head and the heart, not just the head. Now, that's not to say that the doctrines of our faith or the academic study of theology are unimportant. Of course they're important. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent six years of my life paying fees to Moreland's College. But, you know, here's the thing. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, evangelical statements of faith, every other carefully crafted doctrinal statement, even sound gospel proclamation, means little, even if they're true, which they are, if you're not experiencing a living, breathing relationship like the one that Peter describes in our scripture reading this morning. In other words, words, there's more to our faith than just the objective definition of good theology. There's something very, very subjective which is based upon your own experience. The experience of a relationship with Jesus changes everything. Well, Peter is gushing, isn't he, in all that he says. Now, of course, he was writing in the form of a letter. But I wonder if we could hear him speak out all that he's saying in verses 3 to 6. I can imagine him like the greatest of preachers, jumping around and gesticulating, calling out for amens and hallelujahs. Praise God, he says. What a great God we have. Because he's raised Jesus from the dead. We have something to live for. We've been given a brand new life here on earth. Yes, but there's more than that. We also have a future in heaven to look forward to. The day is coming when we're going to have it all. We're going to have life healed and we're going to have life whole. I wonder, do you know him? I mean, who could fail to be excited by his message? It really is good news. So all of that's the backdrop, the foundation, if you like, to what he goes on to say. He says, in Christ, we're blessed beyond our belief, but too, our faith sits on the foundation of that very belief. Peter is saying that when we can start to grasp all of the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus, then we can have a confident hope to face the future no matter what the world throws at us. We still have reasons to rejoice. He's very honest though, isn't he, in what he says. The Christian life following Christ can sometimes be tough. We need to know that life was no bed of roses for Peter or even for those that he was writing to. That's really obvious by all he says in verses six to seven. For a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. In fact, if you read the whole of 1 Peter, you're discovering that suffering is a major theme of the letter. Now, Jesus had actually prepared Peter for this reality. On one occasion, whilst Jesus was still on the earth and he was walking and he was talking with Peter, Peter had said to him, look, Lord, we've left absolutely everything to follow you. We've given up our hopes and our dreams and we followed you. What then, Jesus, is there going to be for us? Well, Jesus replies that anyone who leaves everything and follows him will receive back 100 times as much as that person gives up. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, family farms and so on. Marvellous. What a great deal. 100-fold return on your initial investment. What an investment. From who else do you get a 100 times return from? Certainly not from my bank. Who wouldn't sign up for a program such as that? Well, this is why. But then in the same breath, Jesus adds in verse 30 of chapter 10 of Mark, yes, you're going to get 100-fold back. Yes, you're going to get eternal life. Did I mention that? But also with those two things will come persecution but also persecution. All of these blessings, including eternal life, but also troubles. Well, Peter's writing to suffering Christians, telling them that they have reasons to greatly rejoice. He never, ever denies their distress. Did you notice that? But neither does he discard the genuine joy that a Christian can experience even in the midst of pain. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul Jean 's song choice also picked up the reality that in difficult times we can still experience wellness of soul or joy. Sometimes the Christian life can be a life of painful joy. But that pain is never, ever wasted in the economy of God, which is also a point that Peter goes on to make. In verses 6 to 7, Peter's point is that these distresses themselves actually play a part in getting us ready to enjoy the eternal, unfading, imperishable inheritance, which we're promised to the fullest possible measure. Peter doesn't look beyond the distresses of this life to the sure hope of eternal life, But he says we can look at God's design even in the distresses to see how God is working out things for our good. Peter is somebody here who's writing very empathetically. He himself felt it. He's writing from a personal experience of painful joy maybe you recall his story as it's captured in the book of Acts, after being flogged and warned to speak no further about the name of Jesus, he and the other apostles, it says in Acts 5 verse 41, went on their way rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer in his name. That's joy from the pits, isn't it? That's painful joy. That's joy even in the face of adversity. As Peter writes on, he contrasts and he compares faith with gold. He contrasts it in that faith is more precious than gold because gold is perishable, but faith isn't. If ever you're given the choice to choose between gold and faith, we'll take faith every single time. Even one ounce of faith is worth considerably more than a truckload of gold. Gold won't gain heaven, Peter says, but faith will. All the gold in the world is worthless the instant you die and you stand before God. But your faith is not, says Peter. And it doesn't even matter how much you have. Even a seed of faith is enough. Only faith in Christ Jesus will do on that day. That's the contrast of faith with gold. But two, Peter compares faith with gold in that both are refined by fire. God does not test our faith to make it fail, but rather he allows that faith to be tested to burn off the dross and to leave the pure gold. It's a refining process. And he does this by allowing us into the furnace of difficulty sometimes where we're forced to trust him in ways that we never would apart from such trials. It's in the furnace that growth and refining happens. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said this. He said, the furnace of affliction is a good place for you, Christian. It benefits you. It helps you become more like Christ, and it's fitting you ready for heaven. Peter's point here is that genuine faith will grow stronger, not weaker, through the trials of life. I read a comment recently by Martin Luther where he said that if he hadn't been attacked as as strongly and as much as he had been in his life, he would never have come to that place of certainty or to the full development of the doctrines of faith as he did. Imagine, without the testing, without the refining of Martin Luther's face, the Reformation might never have been birthed. Well, I wonder if you can identify with Martin Luther, even in a small way. I know that I can. I know that I identify with him in that God over and over again has used the tough times of my faith and of my life to strengthen the understandings of the basic truths of the the Christian gospel. To help gain God's perspective on their trials, Peter reminds his heroes, and I sense God would remind us today as well, that our trials are temporary. He says, your trials in this life are for only a little while. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, a little while, well, good grief. Do you know what? I've been going through this particular trial in my life for for years and years and years. Or maybe even just as you look back over the last nine months, you say, well, what about um, COVID? Isn't nine months of this testing that we've experienced with COVID enough? Well, nine months is just a little while, isn't it, compared to eternity, and the Apostle Paul expresses the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18. He says this, For our light and momentary troubles, we are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Trials are temporary, salvation is eternal. Peter knew that. He knew that in a short while, compared to eternity, Christ would be returning in glory and he would get to spend the whole of his eternity with him. Our present trials, no matter how great, be that COVID or anything else, will one day pale into insignificance in the light of eternity. In the midst of our pain, we can know great joy if we focus on the shortness of time compared to the eternal glory that awaits us when Jesus returns. And I think it's worth hanging on to that thought as we head towards the end of 2020. There's a great promise that is ahead of us. And compared to the eternity of that promise, our trials and our struggles are but a short period of time. Well, finally, before speaking about this inexpressible joy that can be ours in Christ, Peter, just like Paul did in 2 Corinthians, speaks about this crucial ingredient if we're to experience it. He says, without this one ingredient, you will never experience this inexpressible joy. If you don't have this one ingredient, then your cake won't be fully formed and it won't bake properly. And he speaks about the importance of faith in verse 8. You love him even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious inexpressible joy. So what is faith? Well, faith is believing what you cannot see. Or in the words of Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is Abraham when he left Ur because God told him to without knowing the promise that was ahead of him. Faith is believing that God has said something is true just because God has said it, not because you can see that thing with your own eyes. Faith is not knowing what the future holds, but knowing who holds the future. Harry, our youngest son, reminded me of the story of Thomas, or doubting Thomas, as we sometimes refer to him earlier this week. He fell off of his skateboard after a bit of an altercation with his middle brother and ended up creating a massive wound on his knee. Now this wound's gone a bit nasty and a bit manky and it even necessitated a trip to the doctor and Harry kindly invited me to put my fingers into his injury. Well, I quietly declined, but it did remind me of the story of Thomas. John chapter 20 from verse 25 says this, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of those nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the door being shut and stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing, says Jesus to Thomas. And Thomas Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, these are really important words. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Do you remember the words that Jesus once spoke to Peter? Words of restoration after Peter had so horrendously denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Do you remember the question that Jesus asked Peter? He said to Peter, not once, not twice, but three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And I think all of this leads us to perhaps the most important question that there is to be asked. Do you love Jesus? Faith embodies love. Faith in Christ embodies love of Christ. Faith includes love, which is a point that Peter also makes in verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him he says. So it leaves me with a question. Do you love Jesus? To love God completely with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. That's how the Bible describes lovers of God. Do you love Jesus? If you do, then you can rejoice that you believe in Christ because you've been promised eternal life. If you do, then you can rejoice with this inexpressible joy that Peter speaks of here because all of our wrestles today are but for a little while compared to the promise that we have. If you love Jesus, then you can be assured that you can know joy even in the midst of life challenges and difficulties. You know, I guess in a sense this morning what I've struggled to capture is that sense of the glory and the awesome and the wonderness that there is in the gospel. This gospel can be made real and it can be made personal to your life if you'll simply say to the question, do you love Jesus? Yes, I do. And if you mean it with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul, then you can have a promise which goes on for eternity and you can know joy even in the most difficult of circumstances. Well, in a moment, we're going to share together in communion. So if you've got